Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, the whole story, the UCL podcast that looks at coronavirus through the lens of UCL's research. My name is Vivian Parry. I'm a writer, broadcaster and UCL alumna. And right from the beginning, I've been talking to the UCL community about their amazing work on every aspect of this pandemic. I've heard from medical students who went straight from their studies to peak frontline duties, from engineers who develop life-saving technologies and behavioural scientists who advise government and many, many more. You can listen to all our previous episodes on the UCL Minds website. I think you'll find them fascinating. What struck me is that they're also the collective equivalent of a coronavirus archaeological dig, with each episode revealing yet another of the big questions raised during the outbreak. This week, our big question is, what's been its impact on arts and culture? To answer this and to look to the future, our guests this week come from right across the arts – As you'll appreciate, we record this podcast remotely and today, I'm so sorry, but every tech gremlin you can possibly think of has come to haunt us. So our sound quality is a bit variable. Apologies for that. So let me introduce our guest this week. My first guest is Professor Stella Brooksy, Professor of Film and Dean of Arts and Humanities here at UCL. Stella has researched many aspects of film and television, from the portrayal of trials and the law to costume, fashion and masculinity, and written several books on her findings too. She's been a researcher for BBC Television and a regular contributor to Sight and Sound, and she's also a fellow of the British Academy. Also with us today is Katrina Wilson, head of UCL's wonderful Petri Museum, and if you haven't been there, please go along and look. Alongside her work in UCL museums, Katrina is an activist within the wider sector and serves as a committee member for Fair Museum Jobs, a movement creating more inclusive and equitable museum recruitment processes. Katrina is also a gamer and trustee of the British Games Institute. My final guest is Annalise Graham, the Director of Programme Management at Sadler's Wells Theatre. This means that she's had the nightmare job of trying to rethink their entire programme and stages and everything else after lockdown. Of course, you'll know that Sadler's Wells is a world leading organisation dedicated to dance and it's soon opening a venue in the former Olympic Park, the home of UCL East. So between all of us, we'll have a fair few of the different types of arts and culture covered. Let's begin by talking about the dramatic lights out and blackouts that have occurred right throughout uh, the arts. Stella, the past few months have seen venues closed, events postponed, and the arts industry effectively frozen. What have been the impact of this? Well, I mean, we're always thinking about the economic impact, obviously, on a whole series of um, livelihoods. And I was just in a meeting earlier contemplating the kind of uh, losses anticipated that's going to be about 16 billion across the sector, 150,000 jobs at least uh, could potentially be be uh, be what happens. But I think actually part of what I've been trying to also think through is with this great loss of, uh, of the cultural industry or of being able to actually kind of um, go to the theatre uh, go to uh, museums is a more existential and symbolic one, which is the kind of loss of what I think of as being liveness, you know, and the importance of being able to interact spontaneously, to go to a unique event, uh, not to have to plan everything, 
to be there, you know, for a very special moment when something extraordinary happens on stage and knowing that it won't ever be be repeated again. That kind of interaction, I think, is feels to me it's not just emotionally enriching but uh psychologically beneficial and i fear that there's been that there's something which is quite quite kind of um the kind of magnitude of um what we're losing when we have to think about every single action we can't just spontaneously go up and hug someone etc etc is that it's also that which we're which we're losing um, alongside the, the the kind of loss of a whole cultural industry, I mean, think of central London. I think it's it's pretty empty at the moment, and it's going to take quite a long time to come back. It will come back. I mean, you know, after the plague of sixteen o three, the theatres did finally reopen, and there was an industry to go back to. And uh, but it's trying to negotiate, trying to work work out what it's going to be like. I think is what's the problem. And the big issue is it's not just about buildings, of course, that have to be, you know, still maintained uh, during lockdown, but almost all the arts and culture sector depends on freelancers. You know, people who are the talent, you know, everything from costume, costumiers to uh, actors to musicians all over the place, they're all freelancers. Absolutely. And I think one of the ma- major repercussions is sort of it's not going to be necessarily the the more the older, more established people who suffer in quite the same way as, you know, um, uh, younger people thinking of going into the arts, uh, those from lower socio-economic uh, uh, groups who might have been drawn to the sector thinking, no, now this is not the sort of job I'm going to go into. I think there's going to be a ripple of significant long-term effect of all of this, people making choices based on what they think of as being a secure job. I mean, the kind of freelancer, it dependent on their being, you know, uh, on there being short-term contracts, that's not the case now. Uh, so I think it's going to it's going to lead to a vast, a very kind of differentiated and unequal society. And there has been a lot of talk about this 1.75 billion pound emergency support package, but again, it's very unclear as to where that's going to go and how it's going to be distributed. I, I was uh, talking to um, Patrick Harrison at the Finnish National Ballet, or a colleague of mine was, sorry. And he's saying, well, basically, that money is very welcome, but it's just for the mothballing phase. It's not actually able to uh, to kind of generate new new creative work. So it's it, it's it's there's also that tremendous uncertainty about longer term what's going to happen. I mean, what it will mean is that things aren't going to close now. But unless we start to think through how to make, you know, how to ensure economic uh, viability long term, it's just going to stay, it's, it's it's just a kind of stay of execution, I think is how some people are seeing it. But however... There is a real positive here. Sorry, I'm being very gloomy. There is a real positive, which is not only is it keeping businesses going, but it also suggests that someone out there in government has realised that the arts 
and culture are really important that we want to keep them we want to uh, you know keep them going and that's an important message I think that it's not just simply oh they're kind of nice to haves it's also this is part of our society it's part of how we engage with each other you know uh, how we how we feed off art and culture is part of what makes us human so we need to keep these industries going we might not need them in the way that we need the NHS but I think this is a clear signal that government is understanding at least that it's not just about need it's also about other factors that you know keep us going emotionally psychologically and as people so we've seen from the AHRC's boundless creativity program there's been this massive pivot to digital but there have been lots of problems with digital you know it 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 doesn't really pay, um, not unless you're that Korean pop band. I'm, I'm going to get their name wrong, but I think they're called BTS. And they managed to suddenly switch to digital instead of going on tour, which they've been planning. And they managed to sell 750,000 tickets at full price to K-pop fans around the world, which was the equivalent of 50,000 stadium shows. Unfortunately, I do think that our cultural institutions have quite the pull of uh, of K-pop, and we haven't yet found a way to make digital pay. And I'm guessing, actually, one of the most important things, Stella, is just as you say, is that we're all craving live. We want that experience. Absolutely, we do. I mean, actually, as uh, someone said, gave me um, a really quite fascinating statistic recently which is oh I thought it was good which was um that last year I pre-covid more people went to the theatre than went to football matches which I thought was great I mean obviously football only happens on certain times of the day so it's not quite as surprising as it sounds and there has been a huge move to tech tech has tried to if you think of what Netflix tried to do Netflix has sort of tried to tried to replicate in some small form that kind of loss of liveness and this morning I heard that Sam Mendes is calling for Amazon and other web-based platforms such as Netflix which have flourished during Covid because of the easy access of tech culture to help fund live theatre and other culture which is quite an interesting idea we'll see whether that's that works but tech hasn't been, I mean, tech is not a good substitute because we actually, it, it's because you can never simulate adequately what it's like to actually be you in that space at that time, being there, being in the exhibition space, choosing to watch the, watch the paintings in your own idiosyncratic order, for example. I think that is the kind of loss of individuality. It's much better than nothing. And some people have been, you know, and it really is, I mean, to be able to access the kind of, you know, Met Opera's um, archive has been an amazing um, boom. And of course, actually, the Met have, have been making money that way for a very long time. I mean, that predates uh, all yes, of this of by a decade or so. Let me turn now to Annalise. Obviously, Sadler's Wells normally has fantastic audiences um, throughout the week for its ballet programmes and, and, and its many other programmes that it's doing. But are you worried about 
what will happen when you open, whether the audience will actually come back again. Um, yes, I'm sure. Yeah, that's definitely a concern of ours. You know, when we normally operate, we're operating on kind of 60 to 80 percent capacity across all of our shows to make the whole thing financially viable and even more so, say, at Christmas. Um, and so thinking that, you know, if those numbers go down by 30 percent or even 50 percent, as some venues are kind of forecasting, that has a quite a sort of catastrophic effect on the finances um, as we raise kind of 80 percent of our income through ticket sales. So, yes, it is a concern. And, and the biggest thing that's a challenge is that we just don't know. So we're kind of forecasting various different scenarios to see what, what might happen. But, you know, we just don't know, you know, when people will start to return because um, at the moment we don't actually know when we can open the theatre without social distancing or even with social distancing. So it's this kind of great unknown thing. And then we think, well, how how quickly will people return to kind of the regular levels that they were at before? So um, I think that makes us sort of trying to plan our first year of operation, say, after we're able to open, quite difficult because it's very unknown, as it is for many other businesses. Um, so we have those concerns. And obviously there are things that we're talking about a lot with our teams around what can we do to ensure that audiences are able to start returning confidently to live performance. And there is an issue with some of theatres where the audiences tend to be older and actually they're the people who have least confidence about returning. Yes, absolutely. So when we kind of look at our audience figures and we're able to analyse by different kind of segments, as we call them, um, and age could be one of those, yeah, that's that's a big concern for some productions, which we think actually do... um, have quite a high uh, level of kind of older audiences they're, they're potentially more risky kind of shows to program in that first period if they're not feeling confident to come out and to come back and tell me about christmas shows because we've had a lot about uh, panto and i know that saddles wells is very well known for its fantastic christmas shows but yeah. they're a big money earner aren't they for you and not yeah. to have them is a bit of a disaster it is. So yeah, obviously at Christmas, we're running a very high capacity. We always have a brilliant production by Matthew Bourne. Um, and this year we were planning to have his Nutcracker. Um, so, yeah, th- during that period, you know, we operate kind of 90 percent kind of capacity across those sort of six to eight weeks. And obviously all the bars are doing great business. It's kind of it's, it's Christmas. It's a time when everyone's with their families. They're having some, you know, a really good family treat. They're spending a bit more money in the theatre. So we're able to generate a decent amount of income, which can then subsidise various things um, throughout the, the rest of the year. So, yes, not having a Christmas season is really critical. You know, we haven't made any final decisions on that yet, but that those decisions are going to come quite quickly, I think, for a lot of the regional theatres around Panto and for us around our Christmas season. And because we just don't yet know when we'll be able to reopen, it's just very uncertain as to whether or not we can go ahead. And, of course, we need to make that decision now because with the sheer number of tickets you need to sell, by December, you need to kind of make that decision in about a month's time. So let's move away from the immediate dramas and, and, and worries and think a bit more long term. What do you think the future is for arts and culture, particularly perf- performing arts, and how you're going to meet the needs of audiences? And surely there'll be more online content, but as we've discussed already a bit, it, it's not always seen in the same way by audiences. And also the other thing, they're not prepared to pay for it because a lot of digital is seen to be free content. And that's quite tricky too. So what do you think the future is? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky because we just we just don't know yet. I mean, obviously, we have tried. We did try and um, pilot a, a model where we um, had a, some digital content, which was pay to view via Vimeo, which was great. But, you know, the kinds of money that people are paying five pounds per view is obviously quite low. So it's never going to be a huge effective revenue stream to kind of replace live performance and there are some things that people will pay for if it's particularly kind of unique experience but yes it's never going to completely replace the live experience I mean I hope that we will eventually when all this passes we're obviously right in the midst of it at the moment people will want to return to live performance that sense of gathering socializing sort of collective identity people will want to come back it's just when that is and I think it between then and there will be a kind of mixture of possibly socially distanced performances with some digital content towards a kind of full, a fuller reopening of the sector. But obviously, it, that's all very uncertain at the moment. And Stella, I wondered, have you been back to the cinema yet? To be honest, I haven't. I was thinking about that. I mean, because I know that my local picture house has reopened. I kind of, it must have like four or five people in it in the small screen. And I'd be very interested to see the difference it makes having like four or five people in an auditorium that would normally take, I know I've made bad numbers, about 50, you know, thinking in my head what the, what it looks like. I do think this is a radical moment, though, that we're, that we're living through, obviously. I mean, that's to, to state the obvious, but I think it's not going to be a question of going back to how it was. Mm. It never will be. It'll be a question of how can we rethink this? and how can we make it work for us? I mean, I think we can see a recalibration of the relationship, for example, between the provincial, the local, the small scale and the big, you know, central venues. I mean, I think people are more reticent, ironically, because of its huge importance economically of going back to the big urban centres and their cultural spaces than the much smaller local venues, or that's what one's hearing at the moment, anecdotally. And so I think that this is a moment for of thinking through, even when we have a vaccine, are there certain things that will, that will have changed fundamentally? It'd be really interesting to hear from um, Annalise and from Katrina about what, you know, the kind of things that, how they envisage that kind of, long-term new normal because even if we can go back to full theatres and everyone laughing at the same you know at the same comedy we have to be aware that we've we've now known what it's like to to lose that so I do think that we need to be radically rethinking how it is that we enjoy and consume culture and the arts Katrina, let me turn to you now to talk about the other side of this industry, the audience. How do you think the coronavirus has changed the relationship between audiences and live shows or art spaces? Yeah, so I, that's something that we've been talking a lot about within UCL culture at the moment because we talk to our audiences, but this is a, an entirely new thing. Um, and we talked a lot about whether venues and artists offer digital experiences, but our, our wondering at the moment is whether audiences actually are geared up to receive those experiences, whether they want to or not. And something that I think about quite a lot is that disparity in access to equipment. Um, so on the one hand, the very positive side, many museums have leapt into this and created this wonderful content. And there's been a huge uptake 
I read recently that the Louvre used to receive something around 40,000 visits per day to its website before this. And now, with all the, the material they're sending out, they're receiving 400,000 visits a day. Um, and there are some fabulous, successful examples of online engagement. So, for example, the Egypt Exploration Society have been running a um, series of online lectures. And also closer to home, the Friends of the Petrie Museum as well. I have seen a really, really positive uptake. Thousands of people have participated in these things and it's provided a way for everybody to come together. So the Friends of the Petrie run these sessions on Zoom so that everyone can see everybody else's faces and it's like being in the room with everybody. Um, but then, of course, many museums don't actually have the skills and staff time to ever dream of doing this. Even if they've been able to do some things, the long term impact will be quite interesting. What do you see our culture's role at, the, at this moment? So in terms of UCL culture, we talked at the outset about how the industry has been frozen and, and during lockdown and what we can do to unfreeze. Um, but really, for colleagues within UCL culture, although personally I've actually been on carer's leave and then furloughed for a chunk of time, for my colleagues, I think we felt busier than ever. We've been working on uh, preparing blended learning materials for term one because we've got this, this cohort of students that are coming to us this term and we want them to have as good an experience as they possibly can. And so we're preparing a lot of material that we would normally deliver face to face, handling sessions and activities within the museum spaces so that we can shift chunks of those online and support our academic colleagues in the material that they're preparing, which as, as well, if, I imagine if you talk to an academic at the moment, they're also working really hard. Um, and I, I think um, we've also been running a series of student placements, for example, in various activities so that we can carry on this engagement with students and support for students throughout this entire period. I think we're going to have to change our relationship with culture, perhaps, uh, in, in the future. But I didn't want to let this occasion go without saying how important culture is in recovery from coronavirus, not least in economic recovery. And I, I, I was just thinking, Annalise, from Sadler's Wells' point of, uh, point of view, that actually having a cultural organisation anchoring regeneration, as we've seen, for instance, with the SAGE in, in Gateshead, is tremendously important for the future. So. The answers are often regarded as kind of fluffy or sort of the cherry on top, but actually they are critical and vital for for the future. Um, yeah, absolutely. I know I completely agree with that. I think, you know, our cities would feel very, and they do feel weird at the moment with a lot of these venues being closed where people don't have that reason to kind of go into them. And, you know, just to touch on the economic point first, yeah, you know, in the West End, all the spend on the restaurants and the hotels or people going in without, without those kind of, cultural um venues being able to kind of work that, that all of that kind of falls away so um the economic argument is is kind of enormous um but also things around well-being gathering kind of socializing and a sort of sense of collective identity as well um that culture provides i think they're all really important things especially um in the aftermath um when we get to that point of this kind of crisis i think they've become increasingly important we will get to the other side, folks. We will, we will. So one final thing to discuss with you all. So many people have turned to the arts in all uh, its many forms during lockdown for comfort, for distraction, a way of connecting with people all over the world. But yet preserving British arts and culture hasn't seemed to be 
so much of a priority. It's come very late in the day. Just very briefly, why do you think that is? Let's start with Stella. Well, I think there is a sad perception that uh, art and culture are sort of the nice to haves. Um, I th- it was it was Pablo Picasso, however, who perceived of art as uh, the lie that enables us to realise the truth. And I think actually, perhaps we're belatedly realising that the act of thinking critically, if you like, about art and culture has always been a very important act of engagement with the world around us. Um, it's always been a mechanism by which we kind of can and do tackle the biggest issues. Uh, so it's not just a ju- just just a nice to have. It's not just a way of retreating from the world. It's also a way of understanding it. Katrina, can I ask you to put your gaming hat on for a moment? Because <laughs> the gaming industry is worth an extraordinary amount uh, to the British economy. Yes, absolutely. I'm trustee of the British Games Institute and we oversee the National Video Game Museum. And for the organisations that have been contacting us and communicating with us, they've seen a massive increase in engagement with video games throughout lockdown. And I'm apparently one of many thousands of people across the world who've been playing Animal Crossing every day. And some days Animal Crossing has been the main way I've known which day of the week it is. And those who know it will know what I mean. Um, And I think this role of video games as a way to take you away from your immediate worries has really come to the fore throughout this particularly games like Animal Crossing where you can communicate with people all over the world they can come and visit you and talk to you Um, and it's just really something quite wonderful and I, I think I would echo what Stella said about how often art and culture and heritage is seen as the nice to have but I think how much more have we valued culture during lockdown how many people have found mental health not just boosted by music and literature and film tv video games heritage but reliant on that I'm sure I'm not alone in in finding that by having these things in my life I have a little boy by by having tv available for him and activities and books and stories we've been able to travel far away from the things that are bothering us on our day-to-day life and participate in this rich um, imaginative world of culture and I think we don't just need culture to thrive, we need it to survive as a, as a community. Uh, science explains life, but it's the arts that give it meaning. Absolutely. But, but I, and it's a rich irony, isn't it, that at a time when people have been consuming um, television, movies, you know, Netflix on tap, actually they haven't, people haven't been able to, you know, the, the demand at its greatest the supply side has had to dry up and filming has become a nightmare. I know from my own experience, you just can't go filming. So that's been very difficult. I wanted to finish by asking each of you what's been your comfort during your lockdown? What's been your, well, not secret pleasure, but what's been the thing that's kept you going? And let's start uh, with you, Annalise. I suppose now I find myself having a lot more time um, at home. Um, I have been able to do a lot more reading uh, in the evenings and read a lot more, uh, a lot of different books um, and novels. And that's been um, a real kind of pleasure during this time. Stella, has it been movies for you? 
Predictably, well, for me personally, I've gone back to, uh, I find myself wanting to go back to things that I haven't read for a long time. So I, I, that's my me personally. But what the greatest pleasure has been that, because I've had both my children here, I mean, they're sort of older, you know, 21 and 16, so I don't, um, is uh, watching something every night, pretty much every night together. So we've got through old movies, we've got through uh, Netflix series, We've got through a few documentaries, but my daughter especially is less keen on those. So they've been the wonderful communal, uh, you know, um, family moments in front of a screen. Katrina, what about you? For me, although I would definitely echo both of the previous two comments, um, it's been this chance to participate in digital learning for my own professional development with activities all over the world. I mean, last Thursday, I attended a lecture that was beamed out of Cairo about modern Egyptians' view of ancient Egypt, and to hear Egyptian colleagues, who, of course, are really significant in everything we do at the Petrie Museum, telling us what they think about ancient Egypt. It was really, really brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that, particularly because I do have a little boy, and it can, can be a bit tricky to get out is usually a normal life um, so yeah that's that's been a huge highlight for me well thank you all I'm really grateful to you for making the time today it's a very difficult period for everyone and I think for if you're involved in the uh, arts and culture world for you it's been especially uh, tricky so we're thinking of all of you You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by Karis Bradley. Our guests today were Professor Stella Bruzzi, Katrina Wilson, and Annalise Graham. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcast, or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus and while you're there, could you please fill out our little survey? Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.